0: And the spirit of listening is uh, a kind of openness which isn't so much seeking information or answers because there really aren't answers out here particularly. Uh, If anything out here, there's just more questions. I have about 500 of them right here at my feet. But sometimes the questions outside or the words that you hear remind you of something that is truly an answer that you know in yourself and in your own heart. What I thought I'd do tonight is first to speak, to do a a little bit of a more informal talk that's somewhat shorter um, than usual, and then try to begin with some of these questions and topics and then we'll continue on Um, over the course of future Monday evenings. Mm -hmm. The range of topics that are here are quite phenomenal. Um, How to deal with extreme anger or what is the Buddhist teaching about karma or help with chronic pain or what about forgiveness for people who are still doing terrible things to you or how do you uh, how do you work with meditation and depression? I read that depression um, in, uh, in the Inquiring Mind article where meditation doesn't necessarily help. Or could you explain the concept of non attachment and how that is integrated into relationships? Or um, how can we. Get
1: 25 words
0: What is the Dharma of sexuality? Can you offer some teachings about um, wise speech? What do you do about the ego? What is the ego? And many more. But let me tell you some stories first, um, and perhaps then the answer to some of these questions, or at least some reflections on the topics, will follow more naturally. And I'd like to begin um, by reading you a story in a moment. Um, And the story I want to read is the reminder of a kind of quality of presence that's offered when we begin to attend to our life with respect, with mindfulness, with that compassionate attention that grows through meditation. Meditation isn't an end in itself in terms of what one might do in sitting or walking meditation. It's really more an opportunity to learn a deep way of being that inhabits our body and heart and mind and somehow connects us with that which is timeless beyond the small sense of ourselves to something greater. And particularly in a world that we live in that has as much still as much conflict and war and betrayal and greed and racism and uh, suffering of different kinds and the normal progression of illness and death um, the only real medicine for those things is the medicine of the transformation of the heart. So here's the first story for tonight. (coughs) Several years ago in Seattle, Washington, there lived a 52-year-old Tibetan refugee named Tenzin who was diagnosed with one of the more curable forms of cancer. He was admitted to the hospital and received his first dose of chemotherapy. But during the treatment, this usually gentle man became extremely angry and upset. He pulled the IV out of his arm and refused to cooperate. He shouted and yelled at the nurses and doctors, became argumentative with everyone who came near him. The medical staff was baffled. Then Tenzin's wife spoke to those on the unit. She explained to them that Tenzin had been held as a political prisoner by the Chinese Communist Army for 17 years. They killed his first wife and repeatedly tortured and brutalized him throughout his imprisonment. She told them that the hospital rules and regulations coupled with the chemotherapy treatment was giving Tenzin flashbacks of what he'd suffered at the hands of his torturers in prison. I know you mean to help him but he feels tortured by your treatments. They're causing him to feel hatred inside, just like he felt at first toward those Chinese soldiers. He would rather die than have to live with the hatred he's now feeling again. And according to our belief, it is very bad to have hatred in your heart at the time of death. He needs to be able to pray and cleanse his heart. He can't go on like this. So the doctors discharged Tenzin and asked instead a hospice team to visit him in his home. I was the hospice nurse assigned to his care. I called a local representative from Amnesty International for advice. He told me the only way to heal the damage from torture is to tell the story, to talk it through. This person has lost his trust in humanity and feels hope is impossible, the man said. If you are to help him, you must find a way to give him hope. But when I encouraged Tenzin to talk about his experience, he held up his hand and stopped me. He said, no, no, I must learn to love again if I am to heal my heart. Your job is not to ask me questions. Your job is to teach me to love again. I took a deep breath. It was not in my nursing curriculum. (laughs) So I asked him, how could I help you love again? Tenzin immediately replied, sit down, drink my tea, eat my cookies. Now Tibetan tea is strong black tea laced with yak butter and salt. It's not easy to drink, but that's what I did. For several weeks, Tenzin, his wife and I sat together e- drinking yak butter tea. We also worked with his doctors to find ways to treat his physical pain. But it was his spiritual pain that seemed to be lessening. Each time I arrived, Tenzin was sitting cross-legged on his bed, reciting prayers from his books. As time went on, he and his wife hung more and more colorful tankas, Tibetan Buddhist banners and deities on the walls. The room was fast becoming a beautiful religious shrine, a temple. When the spring came, two months later, I asked Tenzin what Tibetans do when they are ill in the spring. He smiled brightly and said, We sit downwind from the flowers. I thought he must be speaking poetically, but Tenzin's words were quite literal. He told me, Tibetans sit downwind so they can be dusted with the new blossoms' pollen that float on the spring breeze. They feel this new pollen is strong medicine. At first, finding enough blossoms seemed a bit daunting. I brought flowers to the house, then one of my friends suggested that Tenzin visit some of the local nurseries. I called the manager of one of the nurseries and explained the situation. The manager's initial response was, you want to do what? (laughs) But when I explained the request, the manager agreed. So the next weekend, I picked up Tenzin and his wife with their provisions for the afternoon black tea, butter, salt, cups, cookies, prayer beads, and prayer books and dropped them off at the nursery. I assured them I'd return at 5 o'clock. The following weekend, Tenzin and his wife visited another nursery. The third weekend, they went to yet another nursery. The fourth week, I began to get calls from the nurseries inviting Tenzin and his wife to come again. (laughs) One of the managers said, we've got a new shipment of Nicotania coming in, and some wonderful fuchsias, and oh yes, some great Daphne. I know they would love the scent of the Daphne. And I almost forgot, we have some new lawn furniture that Tenzin and his wife might enjoy as well. Later that day, I got a call from a second nursery, saying they had colorful wind socks that would help Tenzin predict where the wind was blowing, so he could sit properly downwind. Pretty soon the nurseries all around Seattle were competing for Tenzin's (laughs) visits. People began to know and care about this old Tibetan couple. The nursery employees started setting out the lawn furniture in the direction of the wind. Others would bring out fresh hot water for their tea. Some of the regular customers would leave their wagons of flowers near the two of them as they shopped. It seemed that a community was growing around Tenzin and his wife. At the end of the spring, which then led into the summer, and at the end of the summer, Tenzin returned to his doctor for another CT scan to determine the extent of the spread of the cancer. But the doctor could find no evidence of cancer at all. He was dumbfounded. He told Tenzin that he just couldn't explain it. Tenzin lifted his finger and said, I know why the cancer has gone away. It could no longer live in a body That is filled with love. When I began to feel all the compassion from the hospice people, from the nursery, from the employees, from all those who were buying flowers, all those people who wanted to know about me, I started to change inside. And now I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to heal in this way. Doctor, please remember your medicine is not the only cure. Sometimes compassion can cure cancer as well. So that's the first story for this evening. And it speaks in this world of loss, betrayal, and conflict about another way, and a way that is as true to us as our own body and our breath, a way of compassion and caring and respect for this human life that we've been given. And it has in it a tremendous courage, a kind of amazing courage, the courage of faith to live what one values, to say, even at the cost of my life, I will not nourish hatred in my heart. I simply will not do it. It's like the young Tibetans who have gone to see the Dalai Lama at certain points um, with a great deal of suffering in their hearts to say that our temples have been destroyed and our books burned and our religion and our villages um, uh, taken over and we need to go back and fight. Maybe we should start a brigade like the Afghanis did and get stinger missiles and go in our mountains and shoot down every... You know, army, helicopter, and airplane, and do a kind of guerrilla warfare because what we've done hasn't worked, what you've done. And the Dalai Lama described listening to them, and his reply was to say, You know, you may be right. Um, I've tried the best that I can to lead our people in a nonviolent resistance and yet there's been so much suffering and so much loss, and maybe I have not done the right thing, and maybe we need a different leader than myself. Um, If you think that is right, I am willing to step aside as Dalai Lama and as leader of Tibet, and you can find someone else, because I must also tell you that in my dedication as a Buddhist monk, there's no way that I, in this life, could ever say yes to violence against a single human being. I simply cannot do that. But maybe I'm not a good enough leader for you, he said, and he wept. Maybe I haven't done it right. Think about the courage that's required for you or for any of us to truly live a life of forgiveness, of compassion, of the deepest values of our heart in the face of a culture of materialism and speed and in some ways the glorification of violence that we see in the world. Archbishop Cesar Romero said, they can kill me, but they cannot kill the voice of justice. If they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadorian people he said, and he was assassinated, or Martin Luther King Jr., I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world, this is the end of life, the end of life is not to be happy, the end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, the end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. This Lama Tenzin trusted in some greater truth that we know as well in our hearts. And he began in the simplest way to live in the reality of the present with a kind of openness and faith and an honoring that what needs to be healed gets healed in love. As Krishnamurti says, It is the truth that liberates and not our efforts to be free. He didn't struggle and try to make something a certain way, but instead he gave his heart to what he truly believed in and valued. And then all kinds of miracles happen. You know, the other day when Ajahn Jamyun was here in the afternoon, this meditation master healer that some of you saw last week, a young boy came up to him in the course of the afternoon who had been um, diagnosed with diabetes. And he asked Ajahn and he said, the doctors say that diabetes can never be healed, is that true? And Ajahn Chömin looked at him and he said, there are so many miracles that no one can explain. You can't say that it will never be healed, you really don't know. I don't know, no one knows. He said, there really are miracles. And this little boy smiled and he said, I know a miracle. And Ajahn Jamian said, You do? He said, Yes. He said, Some months ago, he said, I have a bowl with a, a fish bowl next to my bed. And I was sleeping and I rolled over and I kicked the bowl over in the middle of the night. I didn't know it. And all the bowl dropped on the floor and all the water spilled out and, and my fish was there on the floor without water all the rest of the night. And I woke up in the morning and the carpet was soaked with water. It had been that way a long time and there was my fish under the bed and I picked him up and I put him in a bowl of water and guess what, Ajahn? He was okay. Was that a miracle? We thought so. A person that I know that leads vision quests and takes people way out into the wilderness to leave them alone in the top of the mountains or in the desert for a night or several days or longer to be there with the wild animals and the moon and their own beating heart so that they can search for something that's true and deep in themselves. Said that at first when they took people out on the vision quests, they tried to push them to go further and further. Go way out in the mountains to forget about the rattlesnakes and the mountain lions and things. Go as you know, try to get people push yourself. Go to your edge. Go to the place where you where you're afraid you're going to die and really face it. But then they said at one point they realized that um, when they pushed people in that way, except maybe for young men, you know how young men are—they're their own breed. But except for that. Most people spent their time worried about where they were and what was going to happen to them. So instead, this leader changed and said, you can go as far as you like. You can stay in sight of my tent if you wish, or you can go in hearing distance, or you can go further away, up in those trees or in those rocks or all the way up in the mountains. You find the place where it feels like you are ready to learn the deepest lesson for your heart. And you know what happened? People went further out because they were given permission. But not everyone, the people who shouldn't didn't. They stayed close and instead of sitting there being worried and afraid all night, they found the place that was their edge, their place to learn. Maybe it was in sight of the campfire or not so far away. And then they settled down and they really listened. And it's what Tenzin did in that story. He let himself listen and trust in a way that was different than all the messages around him. He listened with his heart, as we can do, as we learn in meditation. Last week, Ajahn Jamnian talked about the practice of Mahasati, of the great mindfulness, of allowing ourselves to have awareness of what arises like the waves of the ocean, thoughts and feelings, pleasant sensations and painful sensations, joy and sorrow, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. He said, if we practice meditation in a regular way and let ourselves rest in this space of kind attention, then gradually all the stories of the mind and all the difficulties and all the conflicts, they will surface, they will come, but we won't be so lost in them. We won't be so identified with them. And there will come a space of understanding and simplicity and settling and healing and a kind of joy that is natural to us. I got a manuscript from an acquaintance from this teacher from Canada named Oriah Mountain Dreamer, who's uh, written some wonderful poetry in a book. This is her new manuscript. And in it, she tells a story about having a workshop that she was going to ask people to um, go for her and do a whole series of spiritual teachings. And the workshop wasn't so full. And she began to get worried about her money and her budget and things like that. Previously, she thought, I only want people to come when they're ready and it's the right thing and I won't ever try to kind of go and recruit people. But the workshop wasn't very full. So, what she writes, she writes this story. Uh, let's see, here we are. She said, so there were a couple of people that were on the fence, should they come to my workshop or shouldn't they? And I thought about it and I looked at the registration being low and I decided, well, maybe I'll encourage them a little bit, because I was nervous. I'll be out on the street with a shopping cart, you know, those kinds of fears that we have. And so I get the answering machine. Hi, Fran, Oraya here. Just checking in about your registration at the retreat. There's only a few places left, and I'd love to have you join us if you want. You know, this is a beautiful ceremony. I don't know if it's right or not, but um, it's really going to be quite wonderful, and you might be one of those people that would really benefit, and so forth. Um, Anyway, let me know. Thanks. And I hang up. Nothing I've said is untrue, but I feel a little sick, she says. (laughs) I know I've let my concern about making enough money in the workshop filling lead me to try to influence this person's decision by a little bit of flattery. I shake my head ruefully to myself and sigh. Should have gone into advertising, or I, a nice bullshitting. I mutter out loud, kind of disgusted with myself, and as the words finish leaving my mouth, I hear the high beep of Fran's answering machine turning off, and I realize... (laughs) frozen at my desk like a deer caught in the headlights of an oncoming car that the speakerphone in my desk was on and all of that was on her answering machine <laughs> oh I panic what to do? Will I call her back? can I make it worse? Can I? I spend hours, I talk to my children they're laughing, I don't see anything funny about it at all. I know I should leave it alone, but I call her back anyway. I leave some other message. My children say, what did you do? You couldn't leave it alone, did you? Well, I called back and made up some story. She won't buy it for a minute, I'm afraid. I'm depressed. My children, neither of them can stop laughing. There are a few things more gratifying to teenagers than hearing one of their parents admit to the kind of stupidity of which they are a a, re, regularly accuse themselves. <laughs> Haven't you learned anything from watching sitcoms, my teenager says? One lie on top of another only leads to worse complications. And suddenly we were all falling down laughing. He's right. It's like a sitcom. I have acted badly, and not just once, but twice. (laughs) Driven first by a fear of money, and then of being exposed to be far less enlightened than I hope to appear, (laughs) I made a complete ass of myself. (laughs) I laugh so hard tears come to my eyes, so much for being Ms. Impeccable. (laughs) All I can say now is it helps to keep your sense of humor if you really want to see what you're doing in this world and awaken. one more story and then we'll get to the questions. <laughs> the other afternoon when Ajahn Chumnian was in here and teaching, he said that in his part of southern Thailand in the Malay Peninsula in the last number of years there have come uh, a, a fair number of missionaries from the West who are very strongly evangelical, very powerful kind of um, missionarizing and proselytizing, um, not terribly successfully in the Buddhist countries because people have a lot of very strong faith, but still trying to do so. And he said one of the ways that they do this is by putting down the local teachers and temples. And he said they do it by hiring cars with loudspeakers to go through the villages with people advertising when there will be an evangelical meeting and also talking about how terrible the teachers are and the temples and things and that they have something better to offer. And he said, since I have one of the largest and most visible temples in the several provinces around, it's a, and thousands of pilgrims come there every week and every month and so forth, I'm a particular um, favorite of theirs to describe and they tell all kinds of stories that I have. Secret wives and Swiss bank accounts and illegitimate children and all these things he goes on and he laughs as he tells this so he said one day not so long ago actually, I guess it was last year a man came to see me and he bowed to me, this Thai man and he said, John. he said I'm trying to put my daughter through college in Bangkok we have very little money and she's uh, actually in just finishing university and going to graduate school and I really wanted to help her but I have so little money and the missionaries have hired me and I said, oh, Ajahn Jemdi, and said, well, that's very good, I'm glad of that. He said, yes, but they've hired me to be the person that goes from village to village to say terrible things about you and your monastery. Um, I'm the person you may have heard about that goes about to do that, but they're paying me this many uh, thousand baht a month, this many dollars, and it's what I need to put my daughter through the university. What should I do? And he said, do you really not have any other money, any way to make money? And the man said, I don't. And he said, well, then this is a fine way to put your daughter through <laughs> university. He said, they're paying you paying you 6,000 baht a month or whatever it is. Is that enough? And the man said, yes, it does. It will pay for her and it will all, it, our family. He said, then very fine. He said, but I'm worried about you because there are a lot of people, he said, "that that love me in this community. So I'm afraid that someone might somehow take offense at what you say and harm you. So here, let me give you, and he gave him this beautiful protective amulet and let me chant over you and give you blessings so that when you go out and do your work, no one will harm you.
1: <laughs>
0: and he blessed him and so forth. And he said, and I'll tell if anybody comes at the temple complaining about I said, leave you alone, that you're actually a good man. So the man bowed and took all the blessings and protections and then went and got in his little truck and turned on the loudspeaker, started talking about Ajahn Chahmyan and his Swiss bank accounts and what a terrible teacher he was to put his daughter through college. The other day, when I was fortunate enough to be at the teachings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, One of the people who'd been traveling in his entourage around the country at all these different teachings, um, a Westerner who'd been involved in, there's this whole series of people who've been editing and helping the Dalai Lama get his books out in English, a number of which are on the New York Times bestseller list, so forth that you've seen, said, I can't understand it, I am so fried, I am so um, overwhelmed by the intensity of going from place to place and the schedule and the teachings and the energy and the questions that come to his holiness. I can't imagine how he lives this life. To me, I'm overwhelmed. And I reminded this particular person that the Dalai Lama gets up at 3.30 every morning and does three hours of meditation and purifications and visualizations and prayers and compassion practice and forgiveness practice and I asked this person how many hours do they do in the morning (laughs) before they say oh I sleep late I get up I brush my teeth I rush out here for the teachings so it is here in us what Ajahn Jamnian did is what any of us have the capacity to do in the face of praise and blame and gain and loss because that's the way the world is we will have praise and blame we will have gain and loss we will have joy and sorrow and conflict. We will have illness as the story of Tenzin described. What resources do we have to bring to that? We have the resources of our own inner wisdom which is there in everyone. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget that inherent dignity and truthfulness, and forgiveness that is your birthright. But also remember that it helps to practice, because we forget. It helps so much to have quiet times, to meditate, to reawaken and reconnect to that place of wisdom. It helps so much to have a a practice of meditation, of solitude, of walking in the woods, of prayer, It also helps to have community. Part of what Tenzin said healed him was not just the scent of the flowers, but it was the love of all the people that set out the chairs and tables for he and his wife and boiled the water and rolled the carts of flowers over near him. And we take so much nourishment in Sangha and community from one another. Don't forget your practice and don't forget how much we can feed one another's hearts we can remind one another. So I'll stop with that. That's half of the time we've been allotted this evening. Let's see here. Who wants to be a millionaire? We get to pull out little tickets. The boundary between Wakefulness and narcissism. There's a good one. So many good topics here. Yeah, and another one that was related to that, non-attachment and indifference. How about desire as a cause for suffering as opposed to desire, which is the impetus for joy, for celebration, for creativity. Aren't there different kinds of desires? What's the distinction between loving-kindness and compassion and how do they fit together or work together? Could you speak about feelings of jealousy and how to work with them through meditation? It's like the feelings of anger and the the question about uh, pain and conflict. Is there a God? I don't mean the one who finds parking spaces. Where were you before you were born and after you die? Where do we come from? Is there a fate or purpose to our life? What is karma? So this is another of the karma questions. Truth is consciousness of bliss. Do you agree? Yes or no? Namaste. (laughs) The names and meanings of the Dalai Lama's colors, the flags, the banners, the rituals, how to handle feelings of fear in the heart, in the throat, in the stomach, in the body, how to be with myself in the moment. Please talk more about forgiveness. Could you speak a bit about desire? How to work, it seems, to do the jitterbug with serenity. <laughs> Your series on the Eightfold Noble Path was very helpful. Could you give a similar series on the Five Aggregates, Affected by Clinging? Ah, yes. We go on and on. How important is, is it for us to embrace the dark side in our practice? Do you feel that in a society that denies the shadow, it is possible to repress as it is equally as an individual in the community? These are great questions. Anybody have any answers? Ah, <laughs> uh, Why don't we just sit for one minute without any answers and just let some of the questions be? Because these are the human questions. Desire, fear, <laughs> compassion and loving kindness. What do we do with the forces of hatred? How do we touch that place of forgiveness? What? is this life we've been given, who are we really? And as we sit, there is immediately a dropping more deeply into the mystery of our human life in this human form seated halfway between heaven and earth. All the experiences of body and mind, feelings and thoughts rise and fall like waves of the ocean. What is it that brings us here? Who are we really? Who is it that hears these words and knows? Who is it that entered this body? And what does it mean for the heart to be free? How does one feel fully or completely present to those unpleasant emotions like fear or self-centeredness without inappropriately indulging them? How do we stay present for that which is difficult without indulging the emotions? You know, I don't believe that we I don't believe that we almost ever indulge the emotions. I think the indulgence has to do with the stories we tell ourselves and the things that we do with those stories. Fear comes, it's just fear. Anger comes, it's just anger. But then the story comes, he did and she did and they said and I'm going to. You know those stories? And then they lead to all the kinds of actions and in many cases the consequences of suffering that follow. I'm not worried about people when they're on a retreat or in meditation or in different dimensions of their life, weeping or feeling their outrage or their fear. I actually worry more when people can't feel those things. It's not the problem of indulging emotions or being lost in them, but in believing the stories that we tell. So one of the best practices or one of the great things that one can learn in meditation is to sit and allow the energies of life to arise and fall as they do through our being and to bow to each when they're strong as they come, to name them as we've talked about, to acknowledge them. Oh, self-pity. Whew. Boy, I hate self-pity. Oh, it's not just self-pity. It's self-pity and hatred. That's interesting. Self-pity, (laughs) self-pity, hating, hating, and you just let yourself, this this is really uh, disgusting, disgust, disgust, but I'm doing really well with this. Oh, pride, pride, right? (laughs) And you simply allow the experience of this human realm of feelings to be as it is. And then the story comes, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so stupid or I'm so terrible. Like the Oriah Mountain Dreamer story I read to you that everybody was cracking up about because you can all imagine someone's answering machine accidentally being on after you hung up, can't you? And things that we, if, if we haven't said it, we've at least thought it. But generally, we've actually said it. So it takes, the mind has no pride, as we've said. It will do anything, right? <laughs> And it takes a certain humor and allowance to say, okay, here's the feeling, and to enlarge our capacity to feel without necessarily believing the story. The story is one thing. And often the stories are, um, they're wrong. <laughs> I have to put it as bluntly as I can. They're just a story. Our perceptions are, are phenomenally biased. There's a professor at Harvard, a psychologist, I wish I could remember his name, who did a perceptual study a few years ago um, in which he had two uh, groups of basketball players, several people dressed in black, several people dressed in white, passing basketballs back and forth on a basketball court um, and uh, and made a video, a three minute video of them passing the basketballs back and forth. And the task for those watching the video was to sit there and count how many passes there were in those three minutes. You know, if you were and and see if you could be accurate in seeing how many passes were made back and forth. There were two basketballs, so it was kind of complex. Partway through this three-minute short video or two-minute video, a woman comes out wearing a gorilla suit, looking like a gorilla, comes up in front of the camera near the center of the basketball where the basketballs are whizzing by, dances a little bit, makes gorilla grimaces, and then disappears, and is there for like 10
1: seconds.
0: (laughs) At the end of the two or three minute video, the psychology professor asks people how many passes there were of the basketball and duly records their number. Then he asks the people, did you notice anything else in the video? I mean, this is right in the middle of the video, in the middle of the room. 50% of the respondents said no. 50% said no. Didn't notice anything. 43 basketball passes. That's all they saw. Then he said there was no strange things that came into the room, no animals, no gorillas, nothing. No, 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 just basketballs. Then he plays it again. They are dumbfounded. This is a true psychological study, but it is also a portrait of guess who? <laughs> Moi, as Miss Piggy says, right? And, and you as well. Our perceptions, our stories are so created by a particular point of view. You know that to be true, don't you? So what's needed is a great space around the stories the ability to feel the emotions as they are and to notice here's a whole tale, oh, it's a, you know, Dostoevsky and Russian and there's a lot of (laughs) sadness and soul and depth to it. That's a pretty good story about it. But actually it's just the feeling of loneliness or of grief that we have to respect and honor because it's our humanity. Or it's the feeling of fear or anger that we have to respect. And if we learn to be with the feelings and not take the story so seriously, then our response can come from a place of wisdom rather than the place of how it should be. Why is desire considered a cause for suffering when for me it is the impetus for joy, creativity, Satisfaction, etc. What do you think? Hmm? What's your experience with desire? There is a unfortunate translation that has come, partly due to the way that the Buddhist texts use the word desire, as the word is really associated with a kind of clinging or grasping. And partly because some of Buddhism has been translated over the centuries in a rather Victorian and kind of Christian way, where desire and sin get mixed up somehow. Um, If you look in your own experience, you will discover different kinds of desire. There is wise desire and there's unskillful desire. Some people might say, desire to awaken, desire for enlightenment is a wise desire. But even that is kind of tricky, isn't it? Because it can motivate us to meditate, to practice, to do those things that can help us to awaken, to cultivate compassion and forgiveness. But also, even the desire for enlightenment, if it's pushed to its extreme, can make us Rigid, goal-oriented, leave us, uh, uh, remove us from the reality of the present, which is where awakening takes place, into some fantasy realm about how it's supposed to be, and actually take us from the possibility of awakening. So what I would suggest, instead of answering the question directly, is that we begin to study desire and see when it is skillful. Is there wholesome desire? Is there an intention of the heart? We'll call that a form of desire to do something that brings joy or creativity or fulfillment. Is there another kind of desire that has controlling in it and grasping and fear or the endlessness? You know, the kind of desire where it gets fulfilled but inside we don't feel like enough and as soon as we get that then our hand reaches out because, well, we got that but Now we need the next thing and the next one and the next one. Do you know that kind of desire where there's no end to it? What is a healthy desire? Can we actually sit in our meditation or walk through the marketplace and notice the desires that come and notice which ones are wise and which ones are based on fear and the small sense of self and a kind of neediness that is never going to be satisfied by anything outside. Because if we can learn with that attention, we become really free. Could you please touch on feelings of jealousy and how to work through or deal with them in meditation. Jealousy is one of the most difficult emotions, isn't it? There's a lot of good theater done about jealousy and a lot of great works of art done around jealousy because it has such intensity, it's really a fire. So I think the first thing is just to study it and feel what it does in us and feel its pain and then sense more deeply the story that it tells because it always has a story with it, doesn't it? And the story is usually not even so much about the other person or the other situation. If we really listen, the story is about ourselves. And I would simply ask in that entanglement with jealousy, Again, the practice of meditation, of letting oneself feel it, not to suppress it, but to experience the, the fire of it, and then to notice all the script that goes across on the scene, on the screen. And then ask yourself as you hear the story, and it describes you, because it will, the story will describe you, the jealousy story. Is this who I really am? ask yourself, is this who I really am? There's a question here about ego. Talking about how you work with the ego spiritually or how you get rid of the ego. I don't use the word ego very much, almost never in teaching or talking about spiritual life and meditation practice because it's a somewhat confusing word. It's used in different ways. If you speak about it with Western psychologists or psychiatrists who are trained, there's something called the healthy ego. It's that aspect of the psyche that functions to organize and direct our lives. On the other hand, a lot of times people talk about spiritual life as getting rid of our ego, um, which would be a contradiction for Western psychology. If you get rid of the ego, you're unable to function very well. But what's meant in that spiritual parlance, I think, is more like getting rid of our Self-centered ego, or what one of my teachers called the needy ego, or the frightened ego, that part of ourself that we could call the body of fear, the small sense of self. My own experience is that you don't need to get rid of anything, that actually who we are is already as we should be. You don't have to be any different than you are at all. You just have to remember who you really are because what you'll discover is that some of the time there operates this needy ego, this small sense of self. And if you judge it, I hate that, I want to get rid of that, I don't want to be needy, I don't want to be lonely, I don't want to be jealous, you know those voices? That I suppose they would just call the super ego, right? That's another part, one part of the ego beating the other part long enough wouldn't you say we do know how to do that but I mean there are places where you can pay people to do that to you if you really insist but the idea in awakening isn't to beat anything we talk about meditation and coming back to ourselves the image that's used is training the puppy you know stay sit stay does the puppy listen it runs around it gets up take the puppy and bring it back sit stay over and over how many times before the puppy learns stay you'll notice it's the same for your own attention stay come back to sit does your mind listen as we've said it's a lot worse than the puppy it makes much bigger messes than a puppy i mean the puppy just <laughs> pees and you kind of clean it up but the messes that your mind has gotten you into can take years to <laughs> remedy But the idea in bringing yourself back to what's present, to what's true, is not to beat the puppy. You don't want to get the stick out and beat the puppy. The puppy doesn't like it, and you don't feel terribly good about it afterward either. So the idea also is not to beat the ego into submission, the small sense of self, that's terrible, I have to get rid of it. There is a small sense of self. No one in this room will have a day go by where they don't experience sometimes feeling small, feeling this sense of limitation or insecurity. The place of wisdom doesn't judge that. The place of wisdom in us can bow to that and say, yes, that too. But it knows, as we know, that that's not who we really are. The place of wisdom has tolerance, and compassion, it has the perspective that Ajahn Jamyun spoke of of the great awareness that sees this stance of thoughts and feelings of praise and blame that make up our human life and receives them with mercy, with respect, with ease and openness. And this is the way to deal with the unruly ego. It's like Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said about the cow the best way to control your cow is to give it a large, spacious meadow with lots of grass.
1: <laughs>
0: it doesn't mean you let the ego run wild in the sense of, all right, now I'm going to indulge every, you know, fantasy and every fear of the small sense of self. It's more like your pet, okay? You don't let it go wild, but you, you take care of it. You don't beat the puppy. There's some sense of middle path of realizing that this is part of being a human being and no one is free from occasional fear or confusion it is our human nature spiritual life is a lot like gardening the image from the Buddha often was that of the farmer planting the fields planting the seeds and in a certain way, in loving-kindness meditation or in forgiveness meditation or in mindfulness meditation, in the practice of awareness, you could say that we're planting the seeds in the garden of our heart, the seeds of presence and openness, of a ability to respect whatever arises, to meet it with respect. In fact, the seeds are a part of who we are. It's not like they're separate from us. But we're watering the garden, or tending it, so what's beautiful in us can blossom. It is there in each of us to tend, to cultivate, to care for. And you know, you can never really lose it. I mean, the garden might get overgrown with weeds. You might forget about it for a long time, it might seem impossible. But all you have to do is go in the garden and kind of till the soil a little bit, move some of the weeds out, and beautiful things will grow. It's never too late. The earth doesn't say, it's too late, you missed your chance. It really isn't too late. It's never too late to forgive. It's never too late to come back to the reality of the present. It's always here for us. I think that's enough words for tonight. I could go on and on with this pile of questions and I will take them and use them as themes for some talks later in the... Summer. Um, I'll be leaving for teachings in Europe for about a month uh, in a few days. And Monday nights that are ahead, I believe next week, is Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, who's a really wonderful teacher from Spirit Rock. Then Lama Paulden, Caroline Paulden Alioto, who's a wonderful Western Tibetan Lama. Then I think Norman Fisher, who has been the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. I think then Eugene Cash. There's a great lineup of wonderful people coming to offer you teachings. Um, Before we leave, um, we'll do a little bit of a chant. And I hope whatever stories I've told tonight or whatever fine questions that you put into the bowl are simply reminders to you to take the time to listen to your heart, to take the time to let your mind quiet and the heart open and the values of your own true nature, of your Buddha nature, to flower or blossom in your life. The chant I'd like us to do this evening is this one word, namo. In India, when you meet a person, you put your hands together and say namaste as a greeting. Namaste means, I honor the divine within you. Or in some other translation, it means, I see you. I see who you really are. Um, And the root of that word namaste is this word namo. It begins many Buddhist texts. And it means, I bow to, I pay my respects to. And so as we chant Namo, you can bow to your own joys and sorrows, to your confusion and to that awakened heart that is there in you as well. You can bow to, in your own heart or mind to those you love, those around you, to those who are suffering in the world and need your loving kindness, and to those who are causing suffering and also need your compassion and loving-kindness. And I would ask that you put into your meditation as well um, Henry Wise, who died, I guess, yesterday. Um, he's the father of Nina Wise, who's come to teach here on a number of occasions. Um, and uh, anyone else, any other being um, that needs you to bow to them in uh, respect enjoy joy, in suffering, um, respect for who they are or what their circumstance is.